Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns, so I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand, so please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. Hello again, guys and gals. I was planning to cover my all-time favorite Richard Weaver essay today, but instead we were fortunate enough to be joined by Mr. Lee Deming, who recently won a seat in the Montana State House. Lee, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Oh, I can't complain. Thank you for asking. So just some backstory for the audience. You and I became acquaintances through Tom Woods' MeWe group, which I think can probably be best characterized as mostly anarcho-capitalist in its leanings. So with that in mind, what made you decide to run for local office? Well, the uh, absolute lunacy that's going on in the federal level and some of the states, too. Uh, I was kind of planning on retiring and fishing and hunting the rest of my life, camping. And uh, I had some local politicians who uh, approached me and asked me if I'd ever thought about running for office. And uh, I had a couple of decades ago, but I kind of forgot about it and was going to enjoy retirement. And I turned them down. And uh, over the course of the next few weeks, the, uh, the news got nuttier. And I just felt like, well, this is perfect opportunity. If I was ever going to do it, this was going to be the time. So I, I called him back and said, you know, maybe I will. So just uh, uh, deadline was on a Monday and on Friday I made a decision to run. And, uh, and that's, that's the end of that. So I had, a, I had a Republican opponent in the primary and then uh, was unopposed in the general, thank goodness. That is good. Now, uh, I know I've, I've visited Montana quite a few times. I know it's a very uh, spread out state, I, I guess, is, is a good way to describe it. So are you in a relatively small district? Do you, do you know most of the people that you'll be representing? I don't. Uh, however, I had an advantage in that uh, I'm, I was a teacher for public school teacher uh, for 43 years, 35 here in uh, Laurel High School in Montana. And uh, just it's just west of Billings. And uh, I knew, or quite a few people knew of me, 
and so I had name recognition advantage over my opponent for sure. Uh, but it was amazing. I would get out into the districts and get on the doors and knock on, excuse me, the precincts. And I'd knock on doors and I, I'd never seen a person before. You know, I've lived in this community for 35 years. And I can't say I've ever seen quite a few of them. So I didn't know all of them, didn't know even most of them, but uh, quite a few of them had had heard of me. Um, one of the reasons why is that uh, I, as a public school teacher, I taught the last 20 years uh, virtually only civics and honor civics. And in the honor civics class, I had a group that competed at uh, a state competition uh, for a class called We the People. And the the deal is set up by the Center for Civic Education. Uh, and it's a competition where you are a, uh, you're trying to pretend that you're a uh, congressional committee and you're testifying uh, in front of a com- congressional committee. And so the kids have to uh, prepare four minutes. Uh, responses to particular questions, and then they put their notes away after four minutes, and they have to answer questions from the judges that they don't know in advance. And so uh, our team did pretty well uh, in the state. We won it uh, a number of times, and then uh, you win the state competition, you go out to nationals. So we got some press for that, and I think that's where most of those people, if they'd heard of me, that's where they'd heard of me. Is the, those kids in that class? So I kind of, I, <laughs> uh, I got notoriety because my kids are geniuses. <laughs> well, that's definitely that's good. Um, just out of personal curiosity, you you retired here in just the last couple of years as as a teacher. Is that right? Yeah, a year ago May. Oh, a year ago May. Okay. So what what does the modern civics curriculum consist of? I mean, would you say it's um, it's good curriculum, or would you say we're we're proactively watering it down? Well, that's a good question. Montana requires um, half of a um, a year, so one uh, semester of civics. And so, just imagine covering all there that needs to be covered in you know a semester of uh, of class. So, I, I think that a lot of them are really watered down now. Uh, Laurel, <clears throat> in their wisdom, our school district has uh, required a year, so two semesters of civics. And obviously you still can't cover everything in that, but uh, I think that's does justice to the kids a lot more than, uh, than you know, a, I, I think they're watered down versions of uh, what American government should be taught. Now, so those uh, honor civics kids, um, they're unbelievable. This blow your mind what, uh, because how smart they are and how, deeply they understand the constitution and so those kids who've gone through that class uh can for the rest of their lives understand the principles and the history uh behind the constitution and why they set the constitution up the way they did so uh, i'm pretty high in that class and i would say in our school i think we do uh justice to the curriculum but i would say that that's certainly not the case uh in very many other places so. Well, and, and I would agree with you. So uh, what what grade do y'all teach civics up there? So I, I'm from Louisiana. When I was going through high school, we took civics uh, the first half of ninth grade, and then the back half of our history that year was actually free enterprise. So it was it was kind of just mushed together like what you were saying with the state requirements. Is, is it roughly the same up there? 
So, uh, in most school districts that I'm aware of, and I don't, obviously don't know all of them, uh, they teach it later. Now, I had my civics class in as a sophomore in high school, and I, I didn't get much out of that, to be honest with you. Uh, I think by the time you're seniors, you can you can focus in because those kids are voters. You know, a lot of them are already voters and they should shortly be voters. And so the buy-in there uh, and the interest level is higher. And so I think it's really appropriate to do that uh, as uh, seniors. I would also recommend that there would be a uh, civics or government component in the uh, <clears throat> eighth grade. And uh, fortunately, we have a unit in our eighth grade curriculum here at Laurel uh, Public Schools that does that. Uh, or it used to. I've, I've been out of it for a year, and I've only been back to the school for a couple of times. But uh, I believe that that's still in place. Well, that that's good because um, so the curriculum as it existed when I was going through the public education system of Louisiana was in eighth grade you would do Louisiana history, and then in or actually let me back up. So seventh grade you would do kind of like an overview American history. Uh, through 1876, I believe, or 1877. Or it was 77 because it was when Reconstruction ended. Then in eighth grade, you would kind of pause and you would just kind of randomly jump to Louisiana history. And then ninth grade, we did half a year of civics. And then, like I said, the, the other half of the year was free enterprise. And then 10th grade, we did world history. So it was it was kind of all over the place. I, I mean, definitely, I, world history was fascinating. History was actually probably my favorite subject all throughout school. Uh, in any form, but it, in retrospect, it's like, I, I definitely think it could have been structured better. So I, I always like to hear what, what other places are like. So that's good. Well, I appreciate the context there. Now, as I mentioned, we kind of became acquaintances through a group that what I, I would classify as more anarcho-capitalist, but my audience and myself, we are much more in the right-wing populist direction so what concerns did you hear most from your constituents? Because definitely as populists, we want to know that you're going to be there for the people. So when you were out door knocking and everything else, what were the primary concerns you heard most about? Uh, I heard over and over again about the insanity of the federal government. Now, uh, when you look back at when I started on the doors in, uh, it would have been March, uh, some of the stuff that was going on, the inflation was starting to get really rolling by that time. But uh, uh, cutting off the the oil, at, at, you know, so uh, Biden, uh, who I, unfortunately, I, I can't call him President Biden, so I, I call him the usurper in, in chief. Uh, Biden said quite clearly that he was going to end the use of fossil fuels. You know, well, right here in town, we have a refinery, you know, <laughs> a refinery. So that didn't play very well, to be honest with you. Uh, and so people were concerned about those kinds of things. Uh, also, I heard quite a bit of concern about um, abortion and the wokeness going on in, in uh, schools and other places as well. I mean, it, people are really concerned about that. You know, uh, I heard a lot of general concern about the direction of the country. And, you know, I could say to those people, uh, honestly, that, you know, I agree with you. I think, I think something must be done. And I've uh, believed for years now, decades, that the only hope we're really going to ever have is at the state level, if we have hope at all. And so, uh, you know, if I was to go down to Helena and vote for something that my constituents were ticked off about, I'd hear about it. You know, where our senators, they don't care. 
<laughs> they flat don't care. Our U.S. senators, they have no, uh, one of our senators, I, I got to tell this story because if you don't mind, uh, Senator John Tester. Uh, it, so he um, voted for the the Inflation Reduction Act and then had the audacity to send us uh, his, on his contact list a justification for that, saying that this is going to be great for to curb inflation. Well, <laughs> does does he really think his constituents are that stupid? And the answer is, I think he does. Uh, so they don't care what the constituents think. Um, and uh, frankly, our senator, who is a Republican, uh, Steve Daines, um, he pledged to uh, go down to D.C. and challenge the the results of the Electoral College and then change his mind. You know, uh, you don't pledge something that important and then say, yeah, I I changed my mind. That isn't an option. No, not at all. So that that's interesting that that you bring that up. So with with the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, you you would ask, does he really think the the people of the state are that stupid? With, with the elitism that is just so rampant in today's technocracy at the upper echelons of government, it, it amazes me. They, it's like they think if you don't have fifteen degrees in gender studies, you, you're too stupid to understand anything. There, there's no respect for self autonomy, self governance at all, it, because like you said. Uh, it does seem that they think people are too stupid to make their own decisions. So that that is something that never amazes or never ceases to amaze me rather with just how how out in the open they've become with that. You know, it's one thing if you try to guide it behind the scenes. It's another thing with what we've seen recently where, no, I'm going to tell you what's best for you and have no sort of regard for people's pushback when it comes to that. So and that actually kind of leads into my next question. Uh, Montana was was a very interesting state when the COVID insanity was really at, at kind of its apex. Um, you guys actually passed, I don't remember if it was last year or if it was in the legislative session of 2020, uh, but you guys actually passed a bill against the uh, the private vaccine mandates. Uh, to my knowledge, y'all were the only state who did that. South Dakota tried to do it, and Christy Noem, I think, either vetoed it or said she would veto it, so their, their legislator, or excuse me, legislature never did it. So what has been your outlook or, or what's your opinion on the fusion of big government and big business that we've seen over the last two years? And were you a fan of Montana's efforts there? Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm absolutely dead set against uh, the government getting involved in, in uh, I think it's fascism. It's the definition of fascism when uh, the government colludes with uh, big business. And uh, I was dang proud of our state legislature and our governor for uh Doing, and in fact, uh, one of the reasons that I um, ran and uh, one of the things I started saying on the doors uh, was that that can never happen again in Montana, where one person can shut the economy. They, they shut the churches down and and people said, all right, well, I guess we won't go to church. No. So <laughs> another side story uh, is kind of funny. I hope you don't mind. You could edit this out if you want to. But uh, so. Um, I'm a uh, Catholic, go to the church here in Laurel. And those, uh, uh, our diocese was one of only three in the country that remained open. And uh, the bishop, I think, mm-hmm. let the uh, uh, the local parishes decide what they wanted to do. And so mine stayed open. 
And so I think we missed one Sunday. And then the rest of the time we've been open and uh, not requiring masks. The priest never did wear a mask, neither the deacon. Uh, I'm, I'm dang proud of our church and our congregation for saying, no, we're going to church. You can't stop us from going. They have Walmarts open. Okay, Walmarts open. Churches aren't open. You kidding me? That can never happen again. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to caveat on that. So when when things got really crazy here, so I, I'm in Colorado, and when things got really crazy here, thank God in El Paso County, uh, we're still mostly Republican, uh, conservative, what if you want to call it that, but Republican. And it was not nearly as bad here as say up around Denver, Aurora, Boulder, you know th- those types of areas. But to your point. I remember asking my wife when all the businesses got shut down. It was crazy because guess what places were still open? Lowe's, Walmart, Costco, Home Depot. All those places were open, but all your little mom and pop stores, no, y'all y'all are the ones who have to close. Y'all are the ones who are going to have to bear the brunt of the economic fallout. We're going to make sure that big business stays open because, hey, they're, they're vital. You know, we, we can't live without them. So that's been something, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to pick on libertarians a little bit, and I'm going to ask your opinion on this because we do run in, in some similar circles online. What has been your thoughts with libertarians really doubling down on the whole, well, private businesses had every right to mandate this as a condition of keeping your job because you don't have a right to that job? <laughs> okay, this this interview might go longer than I thought. So, <laughs> uh they're not private businesses if they're colluding with the government. If if they're if the government is actively shutting down uh, smaller businesses in favor of larger businesses, libertarians have don't have leg to stand on. Yeah, they're they're private businesses until they accept the collusion from the and the the support and protection from the government. And it doesn't matter what government, state or federal. And so uh, I think, and, and I was saying this even before I decided to run. Uh, <clears throat> what should have happened is that those businesses, like some of the ones we heard about uh, during this pandemic, you know, there was a couple of, of uh, uh, exercise fitness places that said, we're not shutting down. You can't shut us down. I think one gal went to jail or a guy went to jail over that. I think uh, those businesses should have said, no, we're open and you can't stop us. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to shut down all of the mom and pop stores and all the, uh, you know, and, and in uh, <clears throat> in total, I think the people have as much freedom as they're willing to exercise. Yes. And they don't know that. They, yeah. <laughs> somebody has to tell them that you have the power. And so the federal government, state government said, like our state government said, you shut down. You got it. You can't open. No, uh, you're going to ruin my business. I put my life into this. I'm not. No. So to me, uh, I think the grassroots effort should have been. Uh, that they're going to resist the calls to to shut down. Well, you know, on on the point of where where does a corporation kind of cross the line between public and private? Th- this is my opinion, and, and I've been talking this over uh, with with Crystal Methodist. I'm, I'm sure you've seen her post in Tom Woods's group, and she she's a big big supporter of my show, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And she and I have had lots of conversations, but we we've kind of come to an agreement or an understanding that. When we look at the corporate form, especially with, with these huge multinational publicly traded companies, they're, they're not private in any sense. Like, even if they're not proactively getting subsidies, the, the second that they decide to go public and ask the public for access to the public capital and public credit markets, 
they're, they're no longer private. They, they have investors to answer to. They have, uh, you know, employees to answer to this, that, and the other versus when you have a small mom and pop shop, that is a real private business. I, I mean, you know, how many people in your area own, let's say a roofing company, that that's somebody, they have a tangible relationship to that community. They are really doing something for that community. You look at Starbucks and everything else, and I, I'm using Starbucks just uh, because they, they've kind of been in the news recently for some of their decisions, but it's nothing for them to uproot. Like if they have a branch that is semi-unprofitable or if it is profitable, but in this case, maybe the local employees decided they wanted to form a union, it, it doesn't mean anything to them to shut down that one location because guess what? We have 10,000 other ones. We don't need you. You're a brick in the wall. Versus I got a local coffee shop right down the road from my house I love going to, and I, I would be devastated if they left and they only have one store. So they're a drive through Thankfully, they didn't get shut down when all this started. But, you know, there there was a restaurant here in Colorado. I, it may have been in Well County. Uh, if, forgive me, I, I don't remember exactly where it was. But there was a restaurant where the owner did what, what you're advocating. The owner came out and said, I'm going out of business anyway. I might as well try to, you know, salvage what I can. And they, they opened up, uh, I think it was like, I, I think it was for a holiday. I, I don't, I, I want to say it was around some, some big holiday, uh, maybe either Memorial Day or 4th of July. I don't remember exactly when, but they, they tried to open up and they had one day where they let people come in. The state came in, revoked the guy's license, shut them down. Boom. That was the end of it. But Chili's, Sonic, McDonald's, all these, they never got shut down. Now, granted, granted, they, they were doing, you know, takeout only, but they had the economy of scale to do that. Whereas these little mom and pop businesses, they can't just drop $10 million into developing an app and saying, okay, we'll comply. They, they don't have that luxury. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> licensure is something that Montana has been taking a look at for a while, and we're uh, we're going to look at that in the upcoming uh, session because uh, uh, as a barrier to entry and then as controlled by the state, licensure uh, is kind of a horrible idea. <laughs> so even our governors come out and say, uh, you know, if if you're licensed in another state. Why do you have to get a separate license for Montana for whatever it is? And I think he was talking about docs, you know, but you could extend that idea uh, across the spectrum. So uh, they revoked his license. So what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why don't you keep going? Well, <laughs> yes. Are they going to do? Are they going to throw you in jail so you, you don't sell coffee? Well, they they did this this particular guy. If I'm not mistaken, I, I actually do think they they kind of forcefully shut him down like i think it was a revocation of the license but i also think they showed up with with police um presence there so that that was actually that that was a pretty big deal when it happened it's, it's just it's been a while back now and i haven't really followed up on it the way i should have to be honest but this is something honestly i could talk about this all day and, and for time's sake um i i do kind of want to progress this a little bit so what are your legislative priorities now that you have been elected well, uh, before we get on, I'd like to go back to that uh, that fellow that lost his license and the police showed up. You know, I, I know they're doing their job, but shouldn't some of those guys say, you know, this guy's just trying to make a living and and say, you know, maybe I'm going to call in sick today. I'm not going to go take that guy's business away from him. I'd oh, sure like I to agree. see more of that. No, I, I agree. <laughs> and I mean, definitely, I think that when you have a situation where the police are, are just blindly following orders, I, I mean... To libertarians' credit, they are correct on that. The the police should be abolished if if that's what they're going to do. 
but I mean, what in the meantime, what do we do until that something like that happens? What do we do? And that's where I do agree with you. We we deserve ultimately the government we are willing to accept, and right. and I think the best response in that particular guy's scenario would have been for all of his fellow restaurant, you know, restaurateurs to say, "Are you going to come after us all?" Because if you're going to go after him, you're going to have to come get me too. There, there's yes. no unity. There, there's no there. There is no unity where it matters right now. Any sense of unity that we have is solely confined to what's your skin color, what's your sexual orientation, what what's your favorite anime. We don't when when it comes to the big picture issues, we don't have any semblance of unity. We are so factious right now and so separated and splintered. It, it, there's no hope. I, well, I mean, there is hope, obviously, at, at the local level. I do agree with you on that. And it, it but it gets hard. You know, it, it gets hard not to be overly pessimistic. Yes. Well, I, absolutely. Uh, I I think that was the the right response that they should have. Uh, uh, anybody in in that guy's position should have jumped in and said, "Yeah, you can't arrest us all." You know, and, and what are they going to do? Uh, peacefully protest? And the police are they going to arrest all those people if they stood in front of the between the police and the business owner? That certainly would have been the, I think the uh, the solution there would have helped a lot. And if for no other reason to than to say the business owner, look, you've got our support. You know, you may have your business closed down. Ultimately, we won't be able to be here all the time, but we're going to make a statement. Well, yeah, and then you know, if if that's a behavior that wasn't accepted, you, you would think that people just wouldn't go. Like like if people didn't agree with that guy's stance, don't eat there. And then guess what? He's going to go out of business anyway. Right. So. Right. <laughs> I don't know. That that was crazy. And actually, I, I pulled up the story. So this happened in May of 2020. So um, the, the lockdowns had, had not even been in place all that long at this point. But it was a, the, the place that I was thinking about. It looks like it was CNC Coffee and Kitchen. And it, it's actually in Castle Rock, which is just kind of south of Denver. So not not Well County, but it, it was in Castle Rock, which is kind of like a Denver suburb. And that that's what happened. They showed up, took his license and, and everything else. And it, I mean, it, it was it's nuts. You know what? What people are willing to let happen to them? Yeah, yeah. It's going to have to go. I'm afraid quite a bit farther before people are going to push back. And again, that's that's the remedy uh, for people to say, "I've had enough of this." You know, um, uh, federal well, and, and state government has too much power, and we need to chop it back. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean that—that's what Thomas Jefferson outright said. He said a little rebellion every now and then is a good thing. It—it it, it reminds the people in power, hey, you know, you're—you're you're not above the law. So I—I I definitely I agree. Uh, but again, with all that being said, though, now that you have been elected, what are your main legislative priorities? <laughs> Sorry, we keep getting off track. So uh, I've always been a pro-life guy. And even on the doors, uh, I said my number one issue is pro-life. So uh, we we just ran a um, uh, resolution uh, out to the voters to um, have a Born Alive Act passed rather than in the legislature. We did it uh, with voters and it failed. Um, and so... I'm trying to figure out ways that we can uh, we can still address that in the legislature. And I've, I've spoken to some people, and uh, unfortunately, that's not a real high priority with uh, some of the folks that I've spoken to. So I'm going to have to start 
making some inroads up there because I do think that right to life is uh, is the most important issue we face. Uh, and again, I made no bones about that when I was campaigning. Uh, I have to explain that here in a minute as well. Uh, but um, that's my number one legislative priority. Go ahead. Well, real quick, are, are you talking about referendum one thirty one? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so Chris Methodist actually sent me a, a screenshot about that, um, showing that that it failed. So I, I'll, I'm kind of surprised just reading this. Uh, the text of it says that it would only require that medical care be provided for infants born alive. So I'm I'm kind of confused, uh, given my experience in the state of Montana. It's very very conservative outside of maybe Missoula and Billings. So what what happened there? Well. It's hard to know for sure. I got some, uh, I can guess a little bit, uh, but keep in mind that uh, you're familiar with Montana, Flathead Valley, uh, Flathead Lake, that region up there uh, has turned um, wealthy and blue, to be honest with you, as has Bozeman. Bozeman used to be a, uh, and we, we call it a cowboy town, you know, it was uh, pretty solidly red for a long time. And then again, you know, you had uh, people coming in from out of state who uh, moved there. And so the demographic has changed. I think Billings is far more uh, conservative than Bozeman, uh, Missoula, Butte, uh, or Kalispell. And so, um, uh, you know, I think we have gotten the reputation Montana has of being very conservative, but in fact, we're uh, purple. We elect oftentimes a Democratic governor, uh, and our last one was complete catastrophe. Uh, he actually vetoed a um, born alive bill that was passed in both houses of Congress with support from both sides of the aisle, and he vetoed the born alive bill. I, he was horrible in a lot of ways, but that's that's and he locked us down and everything. So. Uh, Max Bach is senator for a long time, who I have virtually no respect for, to be honest with you, Democrat. Uh, he once said that Montanans are independent as hell, and I think that describes him. Uh, not necessarily um, conservative, liberal, but uh, Montanans think they they aren't that swayed, I don't think, in a lot of ways, uh, by national politics in particular. Uh, I think one of the things that happened was that uh, there was some language in that uh, measure that gave an opening to people to criticize it. And there was a million dollars spent uh, in opposition to that, uh, to that measure. And as far as I know, almost no money spent uh, by proponents of the measure. Well, I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because I actually do have some questions about areas like like Kalispell a little bit later on in, in the interview. But I know that you, uh, at least in Tom's group, you, you kind of said that you were also going to be trying to implement somewhat of a nullification or maybe even a secessionist platform. Were, were you open with your constituents about that? And if so, how, how did they respond? Yes. Uh, I was. And so that gives me an opportunity to talk about the, uh, my campaign. So uh, it was a primary. And so I was targeting Republican voters. And so I uh, actually didn't campaign at all outside of, well, I shouldn't say that. So I had a list of, of uh, 
voters that were hard Republican, moderate or weak, and then swing voters. And I went to uh, quite a few. I think I knocked on 3,000 doors myself. And so all of those weren't uh, Republicans. But uh, what I'm saying is that when I went on to the doors and I'm talking to people, I'm talking to like-minded people. Uh, right. And so um, I think that's going to sway what uh, both what I said and what I heard on the doors. So what I heard on the doors was uh, uh, conservative viewpoints and in some cases quite libertarian uh, viewpoints. And I would say when they would be talking about some kind of nationalist, so I said, I, I would say, well, I think the remedy for that is um, nullification. Is the state government just telling the feds no? Now, oftentimes they didn't say the word nullification because, as you well know, that does spook some people. I would or say, or they I don't think, know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And you don't want to say secession. I mean, you just don't want to say it. Uh, but I did say, um, and quite a few doors, that you know, if worse comes to worse and we can't make any progress and we're being imposed upon by the national government, I said, well, um, a, a divorce sounds you know so that's the session it's just not saying the word right so i heard there was quite a bit of support for that the nullification people were pretty interested in to be honest with you and so montana has uh has not really a history of looking for nullification um per se uh, but we have passed several times now um kind of thumbing our nose at the federal government with regard to things like marijuana. So Montana, like a decade ago or, or more, more, legalized recreational marijuana. So that's a nullification. Well, and you, you know what's interesting to me about that? Um, whenever I go up to like Wyoming, South Dakota, Montana, the, the version of conservatism that I've encountered up there, and I may be wrong, you live there, so you'll, you're going to know better than me, but it, it's like, you know, Brian McClanahan talks about this a lot with the Straussians, how, how they kind of turned Abraham Lincoln into a conservative. And definitely that's been my experience when I go up, especially like in Wyoming, the, the version of conservatism that I've seen up there, it's like they were 19th century liberals who just refused to ever change. And you you can still see streaks of that. Like, like today, you see very, very strong streaks of that. And while some of that is good, because to, you know, to your point, yeah, there will be some things where the people are actually willing to stand up. At the end of the day, it's kind of like they also are, are really, really bought into the nationalist version of, of what we've been taught. So that that's something that's always fascinating to me. Uh, you even see it a lot in the South now, unfortunately. Like when I go back home, it, it breaks my heart because just over the past 10 years— you don't really see Confederate flags anymore, like even uh, bumper stickers and stuff like that. You don't really see Confederate flags. It's all American flags and everybody's rah, rah. I love the army. You, you know, I love this. I love that. Whatever nationalist program we're talking about. So that that's something, though, to me that is very fascinating. When I've talked to people up there, um, even, even just some of the, I, I guess you would call them institutions, but just seeing how that kind of took root there and never changed. It, like it never changed, and even Colorado, it's on life support. But like even here in the more conservative area areas, like uh, in El Paso County and more rural Colorado, kind of the same thing. It's like that really old school American liberalism from the late nineteenth century. You know, the the late imperial American ideology, I guess you'd call it. So that that's interesting to hear. 
Now, uh, you you said that the no, the people who were kind of libertarian leaning or, or in sympathy with nullification, they they were very receptive to you. That that's wonderful. Would would you say of the people you talked to that would was maybe a majority, or would you say they they were kind of a small minority? Well, that's a good question. I've never really thought about it. Um, I'd say I'd say a third of them. Well, uh, let me put it in context. So when we talk about these problems. And oftentimes I would say, uh, you know, I'm so-and-so running for watch, uh, whatever. Um, do you have any questions? And well, what do you want to do? And that's the most, uh, most common question. And I, I was told that I wasn't supposed to t- spend time, very much time on the doors. You know, you don't have time. Well, uh, once somebody wants to start talking, I want to start talking back to them because I want to hear what they have to say. I want to, you know, tell them what I think. And, uh, so what we, <laughs> uh, again, I wouldn't say the words nullification very often, but I would say things like, well, I think United States uh, government is uh, out of control and they're doing this, that, and the other thing. And I think the remedy is for the state to say no. And I kept saying that over and over again. And uh, the vast majority of people that I talked to who would never consider themselves to be libertarian uh, would all say, oh, that makes sense. I think you're right. That's what we need to do. And so they were they were uh, spouting uh, libertarian principles, um, but and, and that's not necessarily libertarian. But uh, they would they wouldn't be able to put it. And if you ask them, "Are you for nullification?" they say, "Well, no." You know, because we've all been taught, and I think you were too. We've all been taught that the federal government is our savior, and has been since you know forever. I mean, goodness, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who. Uh, I had a portrait in my room and the last, I don't know, five, six years I taught, uh, I would write under the portrait, um, worst president ever with a question mark, you know? <laughs> That's good. But, would you but, get a lot of responses from your students? No, I finally had one kid. Uh, he says, uh, he's a pretty smart kid. He, he kept looking over there. And so I walked over there. I knew he was going to ask me about it. And he says, you know what? Uh, and I, I, I don't want to cuss, but he actually kind of, uh, he said, that pees me off, he says. And oh. I said, what? And so we had a the whole class, uh, about 27 kids, uh, had a pretty lengthy conversation about why I thought Abraham Lincoln was, you know, in the pantheon of worst presidents. And, you know, those kids had never heard that. This is These are 12th graders. And they had never heard that, well, okay, uh, yeah, he saved the union. But at what cost? Yeah, by destroying it. You know? Yeah, a union. Uh, what? How did Horace Greeley call it? A, a union pinned, or, or the residue of a union pinned with bayonets. So yeah, definitely. Um, he he was awful. I I mean, in my personal opinion, I would say top three worst. Number one has to be Lincoln because he set the stage, and then Wilson, and then probably FDR. So I yeah, that that's good. Now I, I will say, growing up in the South at the time period in which I did. I'm thankful because my American history teacher, when I was in seventh grade, he he was very avidly involved with going and doing reenactments, things of that nature. And he he actually made sure he kind of told us what the textbook said, but he's like, okay, here are some other things that we need to consider. And, And even the textbook that we used at that time, now keep in mind, this has been like 15 years ago, but even the textbooks that we used at that time, they they were not strictly focused on slavery, and I feel like that's that's all we get hammered with now is that the war was slavery, slavery, nothing but slavery, and even secession, same thing. 
And that's, you know, that that's being willfully ignorant about all the buildup to the war. And that's why I don't know if you've listened to any of my recent episodes, but we're doing kind of a long view of the war for Southern independence here on the show. And that's what I've been focusing on is like, look, the sectional conflict, it literally started day one. As soon as we were free from Great Britain, it started. Okay. We, we had these two sections who had materially different economies, vastly different ways of life. They were trying to figure it out for a long time. And actually the North said first, we need to break off and form a Northern Confederacy. They just never had the stones to do it. Whereas the South said, yeah, this is what we need to do. And then they, they followed through. So with, with all that being said, though, uh, just kind of moving into the next topic, you mentioned that Montana's kind of becoming a purple state, and it does sound like y'all's urban areas, um, even, even as small as they are, relatively speaking, are starting to have an outsized impact on state politics overall. Would that be accurate? I think so. I, we're holding the line, though. Um, Montana is, is poised uh, to get a supermajority of Republicans in the legislature. And, you know, I... Uh, I identified for years as a uh, libertarian and ran as a Republican. Uh, I, I guess I could have run as a libertarian, um, but uh, I, I really do think that the two sides have quite a bit in common. And uh, Republicans right now are in Montana, are uh, supporting all kinds of liberty uh Measures in the last legislature. Again, I, I told you I'm dang proud of the legislature and the, uh, the governor because uh, they have passed things that are quite libertarian. So here, here's one. Just let me get give you uh, for instance. So uh, have you ever heard of certificate of need laws uh, for hospitals? Yeah, I, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, we we repealed those. That's good. Well, so for for the audience, if, if y'all are not familiar with, with that term, a certificate of need law basically says if a hospital wants to expand, it, it's got to show a demonstrable need for the expansion. That That's my understanding. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah. And guess who they have to ask? Yeah, the state, the state government. The existing hospitals. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So yeah. I had it backwards. Okay. Well, so it's yeah, very cronious cabal then, uh, very very yeah. cronious cabal. So you ask your competitors like, hey, do you feel it's necessary for me to extend my service? No, okay, we're we're good. Well, that that's good. So it definitely it sounds like y'all have a lot of populist type Republicans and not necessarily the the corporatist Republicans that that we've been familiar with since you know the Reagan years, and that that's a good thing. Now in terms of making sure that you're able to kind of capitalize and build upon the recent success. Have you thought about maybe incorporating a county unit system into your legislative agenda? No, uh, go ahead and explain that to me, because uh, when I read that earlier, I didn't understand what you're getting at. Okay, I probably so, just don't. Uh, it's not. Go ahead. So the easiest way to explain it would basically be like a state level electoral college where, where you actually do incorporate and recognize the counties essentially as miniature states. And you can do that a number of ways. You could do it based on proportion. I, I'm not a big fan of that because I, I think over time that would still lead to the cities having an outsized influence. Um, or you can do a true county unit system where every county only gets one vote uh, for statewide office, for statewide taxes, you know, state, any sort of statewide legislation. And I think that would be a very good thing, especially in areas like Florida and Texas right now. Texas especially, I, I mean, I know that this particular cycle, it actually kind of went 
a little bit more red versus recently it's been trending a little bit more towards the Republicans losing ground. But any of these areas right now where, where the Republican state legislatures have the ability to do it, I definitely think it's time that we implement some sort of county unit system. That way you kind of force a concurrent majority on the state's politics. You, you know, you have a true geographic consensus versus, well, I have king numbers, therefore my will is law. And I, I think that would be something very good. Again, it, in the ideal situation, every single county would only get one electoral vote for statewide measure. So you have to win a majority of votes in a majority of counties. So you, you get a dual majority there versus, again, just king numbers. I like the sounds of that a lot. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. That. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's, it's crazy because that actually existed in America all the way up until the mid-1960s. And then, lo and behold, the civil rights movement just kind of sweeps it away in, in the wake of everything else that was changed. Uh, some things, admittedly, for the better. But Georgia had a county unit system as late, I want to say as late as 1963 or 1964. And it, the, the Supreme Court made them get rid of it, which to me, it's like, well, no, where in the Constitution does it say the general government has the right to, you know, dictate this sort of internal affair? So now that the civil rights era has kind of come and gone, and we, we can talk about this without necessarily having it revolve back to race or devolve back to race, we, we can have a conversation, I feel, and say, hey, look, Cities should not be dictating every single thing in the state. Like any sort of statewide candidate, governor, for example, the governor should have to campaign on behalf of the whole state and not just go to Kalispell and Bozeman and Missoula and say, hey, vote for me and I'll make sure that you get all these freebies. And to, you know, with Kalispell, I haven't been up there. I, I do want to go up there because I, I know that's kind of like in the in the Glacier National Park area. So Kalispell, from what I've seen online, is beautiful. Um, when I've been to Montana, it's been more like Missoula and Silvergate. Uh, th those are the two areas I would say I'm probably most familiar with. But with all that, do you think Kalispell's kind of going the way it is because it, it does have such a big national park presence there? Like, Do, do you think all the people kind of coming in are changing it, or do you think this is something that's coming from within? Well, I do think it's uh, it's folks moving into that area because it is gorgeous. I mean, it absolutely is a beautiful spot. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that's happened there is that the property values have gotten so high that uh, teachers in Whitefish can't afford to live in the town. And uh, so I think it, it has become, what is it, Vail down there? That's uh, kind of the really for the rich and famous. Oh yeah. Sort of. Yeah. The big ski resort town. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think the flathead is, has turned into that. And so for quite a while, it was a fairly conservative area. And I think, uh, folks moving in from the outside. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against that at all. Um, as long as you don't try to transplant values into Montana that, you know, the, the folks who live here already, uh, really don't agree with, then I, then I have a problem. But, uh, Demographically, there's uh, a huge number of people that live in that area, and quite a few of them are uh, folks who don't share necessarily uh, conservative values. Well, and I think, you know, to that point, I do think it would be extremely helpful if, if states were allowed to say, you know, for people who are moving in here, vote however you want for the federal stuff, but as far as strictly local things and voting for state politics— 
we're going to implement like a mandatory five year waiting period. So you you move here and you don't get to vote on our local stuff for X amount of, of years. And as arbitrary as that may be, I mean, experience has shown us throughout history that's actually a good system because the states did used to do that. Uh, Louisiana being being one of them in their state constitution, I think it was of eighteen forty five. They had a prohibition on any sort of military personnel voting while they were stationed within the state. And I, I thought that was interesting, so I looked into it, and, and the rationale behind that was, well, you know, the federal government, they could just, if we had something that was going to expand federal power, or if they if we had a state politician who was maybe going to try to curtail federal power, they could just load the area up with federal troops and use them as kind of like a, you know, a, a blanket voting force. So we're we're just not going to let them do that, and I, I think that's that's a very smart thing, and and I think that is something that we've learned through what a thousand years of of British and American history now. So I, I think that's extremely smart, and I I think it's something that would be worthy of bringing back. Um, so <clears throat> Kalispell, though the way you're describing it, that that sounds a lot to me too, like like Jackson Hole in Wyoming, and it's so. It's so unfortunate when that happens because all of my in-laws live out in the Washington, uh, well, out in Washington State in the Tacoma area, and there's there's an area out there. It's called Point Defiance. Beautiful, I mean, beautiful area. But it's kind of like you know what you're saying about Kalispell and what I've seen with Jackson Hole, where the only people who can afford to live out there are these extremely liberal elitists. Like those are the only folks who can live out there. Well, in Tacoma. When my wife and I got married eight years ago, we could go out there, and I mean, it was just gorgeous. That was the one area where you didn't really have to worry about homeless. You didn't have to necessarily worry about crime or anything like that. But I can tell you now, eight years later, that's even started to move into those neighborhoods. And I, I would I would be so heartbroken to see that in Wyoming and Montana because I, I do. I love both of those states dearly, even though they're they're not home. I love going up there to visit. Yeah. So uh, before we get any farther, I, uh, I want to make sure that um, I say this. Uh, so you made mention of the fact that you um, think it'd be a good idea to keep uh, uh, military folks from voting uh, for a certain period of time. And uh, in Montana, I don't know if they're if the rule is different for military personnel, but uh, in order to vote, you need to uh, establish residency. And that's a 30 day waiting period. And I think considering the fact that those folks uh, send their kids to our schools and I think we should still let them vote uh, on uh, not just the national, but the local issues. I understand the argument. I just, uh, I, I don't actually think that that's a great idea uh well i don't so. i don't necessarily think it should be directed just against the military i i think it should be anybody who who moves in from anywhere like e- even if i moved up there from colorado i i don't think i should immediately be able to vote uh, I, I brought up the military because when louisiana did it in 1845 that's kind of the specific thing that they targeted they said hey any anybody who's active uh, so, so no, I, if I came across that way, my apologies, that, that's not what I meant. Um, it's just I was using the military as an example because that's how they did it. Sure. But, no, I, I think I think anybody, even, even if they're going to send their, their kids to a local school, um, I still think there ought to be some sort of prolonged waiting period to say, hey, are, are you actually going to stay here? Because there, there's an issue now, especially with big tech workers. You, you look at what's happening with Austin, Texas, 
they're, they're moving in hand over fist from Silicon Valley down there and they may stay there for a few years or, or they may not, you know, they may come there, be there for six months and be like, Oh my God, I despise Texas. Should they get a voice in saying what's going to go on potentially for the next 10 years if a particular piece of legislation, let's say a tax, you know, because a, a lot of local taxes, they'll be written with a sunset clause. So if, if there's going to be a local tax that says, hey, will you give us the power to implement this tax for the next eight years? I, I don't think somebody who's only going to live there for six months to a year ought, ought to necessarily have a voice in that. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, again, though, I, I didn't mean that specifically against the military, just using them as an example. So with the, on, before you oh, go, go on, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Um, interestingly enough, the uh, six month thing brings up something that frankly ticks me off every time I think about it. So uh, 30 days is established residency in Montana and then you can vote here. Uh, do you know how long you have to live in Montana to fish as a resident? It's six months. Yeah. See, and that that's crazy. That that that's what I'm saying. That's that's crazy. And I've you know, I, I've talked to other people about this too, actually Crystal Methodist, because she she was a transplant from California to Texas. Um she also disagreed with me on, on mandatory wait times for, for voting because she's like, Well look, I'm I'm a conservative and I moved from California and I'm I'm trying to help save Texas from from that fate. And I'm like, I get it, but for every one of you there's probably five of them who are moving there with the completely opposite worldview. So we we have to we have to have some sort of way to say, look, until you have decided for sure, until you've been here long enough to know, are you going to be here long term? We don't necessarily want to give you a voice in the local going zone. Now, again, for for federal, because you can split that between two ballots. So for federal, sure, by, by all means, whatever, because, you know, according to what we've been taught, you have every right to vote in a federal election because those are your federal representatives. But no, here, like at the local level where we're going to have the local taxes or we're, we're going to have this local uh, school board initiative or, or local curriculum vote, whatever, I, I, I have a lot of very strong feelings about that. But if Montana were to take you up on your secession pr- uh, proposition, or as you called it, a divorce proposition... How do you plan to replace the lost revenue from areas like Kalispell, who do generate a lot of, you know, tourist revenue, but it's because of federal programs that are, are that are there, like the state park, or I'm sorry, excuse me, like the national parks? That's a good question. Uh, I just think we've turned the money down. <laughs> well, so, but if, but if, okay, well, I'm sure yeah, Kalispell... Oh, yeah. go ahead. Federal lands are going to be tough. Absolutely. Uh, I, my, I personally think we should make them state lands. Uh, right now, uh, you know that everything that happens is uh, got on national forest lands is governed by the federal government, obviously, and the EPA. And so uh, I've got a fellow I know who's um, putting in a bridge and uh, – the EPA is heavily involved in that out here in southern Montana. Oh, how how is that? How does that make any sense? I don't even think it's on national forest land. Uh, but you have to get the go-ahead from uh, federal government for that kind of stuff. Uh, and we do have quite a bit of federal land, so that would be a problem. I, I That's why I think secession is probably uh, not something that's ever going to be in the cards here. Uh, although I kind of like to see it happen and just say, look, um, this is Montana and we don't care what you say. Well, and the, I mean, the state could always, if it really wanted to flex, it, it could just say, well, you know, 
this land is now ours. We're, we're not paying you for it. This is in our state borders and we're leaving so that, you know, that's it. Um, you know, what's crazy about that is if you look at some of these things, these states actually controlled a lot of that land for a long time. They had ownership of, of that land. I, I don't know about Kalispell in particular or like the Glacier area in particular, but you look at a lot of Western states, they, they owned their land for a long time and then they said it was too expensive for them to maintain. So they sold it back to the general government. And I'm like, what? What kind of short-sighted idiot does that? Like, it's yeah. it's too expensive to maintain. What What's expensive about it? Because the, I would say the general government doesn't really maintain it, per se. I mean, how, we've heard about the forest fires and everything else, how bad they are because they're not going in there and cleaning out the undergrowth and everything else. So what what's to maintain? It's wild land. Yeah. Well, here's another story for you from Montana. So uh, some years ago, uh, we have a cabin over... Um, uh, in the western part of the state <clears throat> and it's on uh national forest on both sides of the of the property um <clears throat> and then we've got uh private land on two sides national forest on two sides so i was down uh on some of this national forest ground and there was a there was a old logging road that had been um blocked and somebody unblocked it and were running their four wheelers up and down the road and they're not supposed to be in there. Right. And so I went down to the forest service office and I said, so uh, these guys are running up the uh, forest service on forest service on these old logging roads. uh, And I'd, I'd like you to take a look at it. And the gal said, well, uh, do you want me to get somebody out of Helena? Well, Helena is 50 miles away. And so uh, I'm not sure that there's an awful lot of oversight on those forests right now by the federal government. Uh, and so I, I think one thing we could do better is we could log those places better. Um, ha- have you been up into the forests uh, after the beetle kill? Have you seen that? No, well, no, no, not in Montana. Uh, how bad is it in Colorado? There, there's different parts of the state where, where it's bad. Um, I was actually talking to somebody that, about this. This was like three years ago. So I, I've lived in Colorado for about seven years now. But I was talking to somebody about this roughly three years ago, maybe four. But I've, I'm only used to like our mountains here. They're, sometimes they're green. Like if, if we get some okay rains, they're, they're green. But a lot of times they're brown. Like all year round, they're, they're brown. And I was talking to somebody about that who's lived here a long time. And they, they were actually talking about how bad the, the beetle infestation was. And they said, you know, before the beetles got involved with all this and, and became such a nuisance, everything was like green, like very, very green. And she said, what you're seeing is not necessarily because it's dry. It's more so because the, the beetles are killing off the trees and, and they're dying. And so there there's pockets where where it's really bad. And then there's some areas here where, where it's not so bad. Uh, where I happen to be, I, I guess I would say on a scale of one to 10, probably about a seven. Um, j- just because, like I said, most of what I see as far as vegetation is brown almost year round. Yeah, that's terrible. So, uh, the whole point of this is that I don't think that there's been a lot of good stewardship, uh, and there's a couple other problems with it. So, uh, if we, we used to have quite a few mills in Montana, uh, lumber mills, and of course, you know, we need lumber mills, you know, uh, my house is built out of two by fours and two by eights and whatever. And so we need them. Everybody needs it. And yet every time somebody wants to sell timber to a, a logging company, through a logging company to a, a mill, 
they get sued every single time. And uh, one of the problems with that is that um, it doesn't cost them anything to sue. And so uh, if somebody were to have to pay for those lawsuits, um, then there'd be a lot fewer. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have lawsuits, obviously. Uh, but these that are intended to shut down uh, companies because of, you know, the planet's going to die or whatever. Um, what they've done is they've, they've made it almost impossible to manage the forests. And they've made uh, lumber prices go through the rough. Right. Well, I don't think either of those things are good things. No. <laughs> I, I will say this, though. Um, it, I guess kind of in defense of the other side on that. So I, I, don't, I don't know about up there, but... When I was growing up in Louisiana, are you familiar with a company called Warehouser? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So Warehouser, a lot of times, they, they would come through and clear-cut areas in Louisiana. And I mean, when I say clear-cut, they, they would take a, an entire wooded patch, and I mean, it would just be stripped to the ground. And when they would replace the trees, which they, they did, they, they did replace the trees, but they may go in there and cut down, you know, 150-year-old 100, uh, hardwood growth, and then they're going to replace it with fast growth pine, and yeah. and you're you're totally changing, like Louisiana, the the area of Louisiana where I grew up in, you you didn't really have a lot of hardwoods anymore. It was mostly all pine, but because of stuff like that. So that that would be, I guess, kind of my only counter is yes, I I do agree with you. Logging is necessary in in terms of effective forestry management, but we we also have to make sure these companies ha- have some sort of incentive to. If you're going to cut down oak trees, you need to replant oak trees and not just plant something that you can come back and harvest again in ten years. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily just disagree with that. So, uh, what's the libertarian remedy? Oh, so I don't I, know. I, well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I love libertarianism in the rear view. I, I'll tell you um, from my Jeffersonian perspective. I, I would say that if a state is again, none of this would involve the general government in an ideal situation, but. From a Jeffersonian perspective, I would say the state could say, look, we have this patch of, of old growth hardwood here. By all means, come on in and harvest it. But the state doesn't necessarily give ownership of give up ownership of the land. Like uh, a lot of cases in Louisiana, Warehouser actually owns the land. So down there, if you're in a hunting club, you pay a fee every year. Your hunting fee or your hunting club dues, by and large, they go to Warehouser to pay the lease on the land. And then by extension, Warehouser has a lot of say in how you get to use that land. Like there was a big uproar with, with the hunting community down there probably about five years ago. Uh, Warehouser tried to tell them that they couldn't, they couldn't run dogs anymore. Uh, so, it, you know, if you wanted to run dogs and, and deer hunt that way, Warehouser said, not on our land. And they, they caused the hunters caused enough of a stink that eventually that, that got repealed. But even, even now, it's gotten very strict on what you can do as far as if you're riding a four-wheeler and stuff like that. If they catch you intentionally, like, you know, mud riding and stuff like that on some of these leases, uh, they, they will take pretty severe punitive action against you because they don't want you rutting up the land. Which, you know, again, on one hand, I understand that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, the, these areas are already kind of degraded. What what it, What's one more person riding a four-wheeler on them going to do? So... I don't know, but but from a Jeffersonian perspective, that that would be my answer. Is areas where the state has control, I, I would say the state keeps control and just allows them to periodically come in there and and do the harvest. Uh, versus, hey, we have this land, we're going to sell it to you so we can offset a deficit in our budget, and then you manage it how you see fit. That that would be my answer. Okay, yeah, uh, I think has merit. Um, I think the other 
uh, idea would be to have any damages done. You know, you, you're talking about the different types of trees, old growth, uh, hardwoods to yellow pine. Um, any damage created by those guys, uh, the court system needs to uphold that uh, neighborhood landowners or downstream landowners uh, the rights to their pristine property. And so uh, I think that would keep, uh, in my opinion, that would keep quite a few of the, the clear cuts um, probably not being done uh, because those clear cuts, as you well know, and, and particularly in the Mountain West, uh, they degrade the rivers the soil. pretty fast. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and even the soil because, the, the, you know, the, the yeah. root systems aren't aren't really doing their job anymore. So, like, that that was one thing in Louisiana. Uh, the, the last place – so my dad was a pastor, so we, we moved around a little bit. But the area that I consider home and, and where I left and, and kind of went out on my own, right across the street from us – I say the street. We we lived kind of along a, a little state highway, but we we were kind of off by ourselves. But right across the highway from us, there was this big big patch of pine trees. Uh, at that point in time, it, it was already pine. I don't know if it had ever been uh, hardwood, and they had already done some clear cutting or what. But at that time, when I lived there, it was pine. Well, probably maybe about six months before I left for the army, they, they came in there and did a huge clear cut on that. It, it, it was devastating. I mean, cause it was so pretty, like you could go out there and enjoy it. You know, I, I used to go out there and, and hike a little bit. I would, I would go out in the woods and, and hike a little bit and they came through there. And I'm, I'm telling you, they, when I say clear cut, I, I really do mean like they would strip it to the ground. There would not be a tree standing in that patch. Like how, however much they wanted to harvest, that was it. Like no tree went unscathed. And it's just now, and I've been going from home now for almost 12 years, and it's, I mean, it's just now made somewhat of a recovery. But again, it's that yellow pine that grows fast because, hey, we have a rotation. We can do this every 10 to 15 years. We, what's the incentive for us to go back and replace this with, with old growth? And, and there are certain things, I mean, you can only really accomplish with, with old growth, you know, depending on what your, on what your usage case is. You definitely want something made out of oak versus made out of pine because oak is obviously a much much harder wood, and it's the local ecology and everything else is also kind of Im- impacted by that. When you replace one type of tree with another, yeah, sure, the animals can probably adjust over time, but you're causing a pretty big shock to the to the overall system there. So that that's you know again that that's what I would say is any case where the state has ownership of the land or control of the land, I don't think the state should give it up. I think they ought to license it out, say, here, we're going to let you harvest, but then this area is closed off. We're going to replant what you took. Uh, we're going to replant it with the same type of, of plant that you, or tree that you harvested. And th- this area is now closed off for, you know, the next 75 to 100 years. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I don't necessarily disagree with a lot of that. Uh, so, um, I look at it this way. So let's say we're not talking about um, uh, logging company necessarily. So you buy 100 acres down there in Louisiana and you log off the old growth oak uh, and replace it with corn. Would would that be a problem? So Okay, so you're talking about specifically for for like freeholders? So so people who are, are homesteaders? Um, okay, yeah. so, so not logging companies. So with that, I would hope and pray that people would have the foresight to not do that if it was not absolutely necessary. Now, to answer your question directly, because I, I realize that's, that's kind of a dodge. Um, so to answer your question directly, 
I would honestly say if you're in a rural area, it sucks, but I, I would say, okay, fine, homeowner, this is your land, do with it as, as you please. But if you're in a community like, uh, you know, here I, I live in a, in a subdivision. So like here, if I, if I had an old growth, let's say an, an old oak tree out in, in front in my front yard, I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily personally be opposed to that having to go to like a little community assembly, uh, because that's, that's a tree that kind of impacts not just my home value. Potentially it could impact other people's home values too. And there's, I, I think there's a communitarian argument there, but to your point, again, if you're in a secluded area and you're kind of the only one around who's going to be impacted by it, you can do it. I would just hope that over time we, we can get people to see the value in not doing that because I'm sure if you have that much land, I'm sure there's another patch that's probably already kind of not wooded. Yeah. That would yeah. be my answer. Okay. Uh, before we go on, um, something just jumped into my head. You asked me about my legislative priorities. So, uh, and I think you'd be, you'd appreciate this too. So uh, I've submitted two bills uh, to the bill drafters and one was uh, right to life bill, but the other one is uh, defend the guard bill. Are you familiar with defend the guard? Oh, absolutely. And I'm a huge fan of that uh, because I do think that the state should have 100% complete control over their, their national guard units. Yeah. So, uh, that is, those are my two legislative priorities right now. And, uh, like I said, it just jumped in my head. I apologize. We didn't get to that. Oh, that's fine. Here. Yeah, no, that's fine. And and actually I would even take that one step further. I, I don't know your, your feelings on this or your thoughts on this, but I I've actually kind of even migrated to, I think it's going to be imperative if we ever do want to see any sort of separation movement, I think it's going to be imperative that states have the right for conscription within their state borders. And I, I'm kind of unapologetic about that because otherwise, if you ever have a conflict between the state and the general government, I, I think in modern times, especially most of those people are either going to jump ship or they're going to just kind of bring the state down from within. So I, I think, I, I don't think it would be a bad thing for states to have compulsory uh, militia duty brought back in all honesty. Yeah, so uh, I would uh, agree, except I'd make it voluntary. <laughs> well, I, again, <laughs> that that would be the ideal. It's just, I, but yeah. when I look at it, I, there there's a lot of benefits I think would come out of that because something I think that we're sorely lacking now is a sense of community. And there there's a couple of uh, I guess you'd call them post libertarian podcasters out there who who are starting to talk about this a whole lot. Pete Canones is is one of them on some of his recent episodes, but. The lack of social cohesion, it, it, I mean, that is devastating. That, that is absolutely devastating. And, and the way that we've been socially atomized and, and just turned into every man basically an island, that, that's something you're not going to easily overcome that. So if you have, we, I think we need to start kind of fostering a culture where you encourage people to set down roots and you identify with your local area. You don't necessarily leave California, go to Alabama and say, okay, well, I'm just a member, like all this land is mine because I'm a member, you know, I'm a citizen of the United States. So I think we start, we need to start encouraging things that foster state pride, you know, kind of state identification versus federal identification. And I think that would be a good thing. And with, with a compulsory militia system, you don't even necessarily have to have it just in case of bad times. I, I think there are other benefits that could come out of that. Like you don't, 
it doesn't have to be strictly focused on military training when you get together. Like, yes, there will be some of that, but then you can turn it into like a little, you know, town barbecue or something like that and really encourage everybody coming together. And that that's something, you know, I when I was growing up, I grew up in a very small town. Like, even though we moved around everywhere that we lived, very, very small towns. And when I think back, and, and again, this hasn't even been that long ago. I mean, we're talking in the last 10 to 15 years. When I think back to the things I got to experience and the things that the towns would do to bring people together, that was wonderful. And and we don't really see that. Like up here in Colorado, we, we have in Colorado Springs specifically, you know, you'll have like little festivals and stuff, but there's not really like, yeah, a lot of people show up, but they're not necessarily there to be together versus in that small town. Everybody knew everybody. So it's like, uh, yeah, I'm going and, and me, you know, uh, Billy Bob and Joanne are too. And it was a reason for people to come together. It wasn't just, well, I'm going to show up because it's something to do. So I think that's something, too, that compulsory militia service could do is like, hey, y'all may not like each other, but you're going to come together and we're going to hash this out. Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I think we're going to disagree on that. Um, <laughs> Laurel, Laurel has quite a few community uh, functions and uh, it's funny because quite a few people will show up that normally, you know, you wouldn't see out um, around a lot of other folks. Uh, That's good. That we're kind of atomized. And that that is definitely true. Uh, Laurel has, I think, <clears throat> probably, um, I'm going to say this, and I don't think there's going to be any uh, debate. Uh, we have the biggest Fourth of July celebration in the state. Um, you know, they, they'll have 10, 15,000 people in Laurel and the population is only 7,000. So that's good. <laughs> uh, that is a big deal. And I think, um, there is social cohesion in our community. It's one of the reasons why I've stayed so long. Uh, now, obviously that doesn't, uh, apply to everybody, but I think, um, it's, it's not as you're describing it where you're living right now, for sure. Well, and I, I will freely admit, I think I'm probably jaded because, uh, you know, I, I can only see what I see around me, right? And and I definitely think um, it, it could be different in other places. I mean, obviously, what you're describing that that you see around you is different from what I'm experiencing. But I, I think this is probably the biggest reason I, I don't like larger cities so much because nobody, you, you, it's so hard to build that. Here, especially, we have five military bases in Colorado Springs. That means a somewhat significant proportion of our population is highly transient. They're they're here for anywhere from one to three years. And right. just in my neighborhood, the house uh, actually right behind us back here has sold uh, twice, I think. Yeah, twice in, in three years. Um, so used to, there was, there was a really old lady who lived there. Uh, she was actually a very sweet old lady, but she got really bad dementia and she ended up having to go live. I, I don't know if she went to a nursing home or if she moved in with her daughter, but she left a very young military couple moved in. They never, like, we tried to reach out to them. You know, we, we tried to talk to them because I, I do believe like if you have an ideal, you should do everything in your power to, to try to make that ideal a reality. So we tried to reach out to them. We tried to hang out with them. Uh, they, they were never responsive. They were actually, I would say, downright rude. But they were here for like a year. They ended up getting reassigned somewhere else. So this house just sold again. I think it was like last March. And the, these neighbors are better, uh, but they're also military. Uh, the previous ones were Army. This this particular young couple in there now is, I believe, Air Force. So it's it's hard because that, that house is sold like that. The house across the street from us 
has sold twice since we've lived here. And uh, that that one hasn't turned over as much. Like th- this one, like I said, it, it's been kind of just back to back over the last two years. The one across from us, it sold like I would say maybe once every three and a half ish years. And that's just two examples. I mean, if you go up the street from us, uh, there there were two houses up there. Now we didn't really know those people, so uh, not too big of a deal. But if you go up the street from us, a few houses. There, there's been like two houses that have sold multiple times since we've lived here. Uh, just all kinds of stuff. But it's not just that. Like even going out and about in the city. And again, I, I will admit, I, growing up in a small town, even even though I've been here for almost seven years now, it's still a culture shock because I'm I was so used to. You could go to Walmart in, in my small town USA. Literally, you could go to Walmart. You'd probably see ten or fifteen people that you knew. Especially mm-hmm. like if you went on Sundays, Sunday after church. That's when everybody did their grocery shopping. So if you if you went on Sunday afternoons. Yeah, you'd probably be there all day because you're going to see everybody that you know, and they're going to want to talk. Versus up here, I can tell you, out in the wild, just having spontaneous encounters with people that I know and and people when I was in the corporate world that I worked with, that's literally, it's happened twice in seven years. Once was at a Chili's. Uh, One of my coworkers just so happened to randomly show up. I was there to watch a, a football game at the time. Uh, but one of my coworkers randomly showed up, and then the other time was at uh, we have a Walmart somewhat close to our house. So the other time was at Walmart. One of my former coworkers j- just so happened to be walking in as I was walking out, and that that to me is so unfathomable that you can go that long and not just randomly encounter people that you know because everybody is so anonymous. Yeah, that's that is too bad. It really is uh, very very difficult to get a sense of community, and uh, I think it tells you I'm in a subdivision too, but. You know, I was just thinking when you were talking about that, um, uh, the folks over here, uh, I think they've been there for 10 years. Um, these people, I, I've been in this house almost 30, 29 years, and the two houses I can see across the street here, um, they were here before me. <laughs> that's good. No, that, that's good. That's honestly, that's what we need. Because yeah, you, you got to be able to trust the people around you. And, and that that's one of the big things, too, because the, the house that's kind of like behind us in Caddy Corner, that, that house has also sold a, a couple of times since we lived here. So ju- just the houses kind of like immediately around us, two of them have stayed stable and two of them have, have changed hand, or actually three of them if you count the one across the street. But, uh, you know, when, when you have that, you, you can't even get to know them. Like, even if you want yeah. it to try to have like a, a little uh, neighborhood barbecue or something like that, which one of my neighbors actually on, on the other side of our house does that uh, or used to, he, he didn't do it this year, but uh, normally around Labor Day, he does like, he wanted to do like an end of summer barbecue. And usually my wife and I would show up and then the house on the other side of him would show up and that, that was it. And you know, that's, that's sad because he was making an effort to say, like, I want to get to know the people around here, even the ones who are moving in and out yeah, you may not be here very long, but I at least want to know who you are. And nobody has an interest in that. And it's, I don't know, that, to me, that that is so sad, especially after I read I'll Take My Stand. That that book opened my eyes so much to like just how devastating that sort of culture can be where, where everybody just becomes a moving part, you know, just another brick in the wall. And I, I don't know. Maybe in some ways I shouldn't have read that book, but after reading that book and having my eyes open to it, it, it that is so devastating. And that is something I hope and pray. Um, you know, we we just had a daughter, and I really do hope and pray that by the time she's old enough to need 
sort of that that sort of social network where she has her little friends and everything else. I hope we're not living here anymore. I I, I would love nothing more than than to move back to the south, uh, ideally, or just somewhere where we can be where we, you don't have this sort of level of transience. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough deal. I. I... Uh, do sympathize with you and congratulations if I didn't say that already. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> your baby. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, she's uh she she's been pretty awesome so far. She's uh almost a month old now, so we we've have thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh it's a new it's a new world for you. <laughs> it is. It is. I, I can tell you. Um I, I never you know, I was telling my wife about this recently. I, I never thought I would be the guy who got mushy o- over fatherhood just Kind of knowing myself, um, you know, and especially after going through through the army and everything else, I was like, eh, fatherhood is not going to be a big deal. No, no, she turned me into, uh, you know, a big mush ball. Yep. So, um, yeah, we actually, she she had to have a little dental procedure done yesterday, and I, I was so sad because you could tell she didn't like the dentist messing with her, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, we, we got to do what we got to do, but... Anyway, uh, well, I feel that we've had a very good conversation. That was that's actually kind of the last topic of uh, of import that I had. Do you have anything else you want to add? Not really. No. All right. Well, Lee, thank you again so much for your time. Congratulations on your win. I'm sure you're going to do great things for the citizens of Montana, and I'll be keeping touch. All right. Well, uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And have a good day. Yeah. You as well. Little Miss Jeffersonian has made her triumphant arrival, and I can tell you that raising a newborn is expensive, so if y'all don't mind contributing to our diaper fund, I would greatly appreciate that. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your goldbacks today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to y'all next time.